Hello, and welcome to Good News for the Grand Valley, a podcast from Orwell Bible Church in Orwell, Ohio. I'm Dan Greenfield, pastor of OBC, and I'm glad you're listening. We hope today's good news from God's Word will help you know, love, and serve the triune God of the Christian Scriptures with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This past Sunday morning's message on May 15, 2022 is titled Repentance, continuing a series on gospel truths. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to go to Luke 15 and follow along while listening to this sermon. What does the Bible teach about repentance, and is it necessary, and how does a sinner repent, and how does God respond when sinners repent? As I said a couple over a couple months ago, it's a sad thing that there are professing Christians out there today who say repentance is not necessary for salvation. I had somebody tell me that just in the last week or so. All that's necessary is faith. Repentance comes later. Often their motivation is good because they say repentance is a work and works are not necessary for salvation. Well, works aren't necessary for salvation, are they? You're not saved by your works. You're saved by what Christ has done. So we need to ask, what is repentance? Is it necessary? And what does God think and feel about it? First, number one, what is repentance? A definition for you here with some blanks. Repentance is turning from sin. That's the first essential aspect of it. It is turning from sin with sorrow and hatred of it. Turning from sin with sorrow and hatred of it. I'll develop this in a little bit. Turning from sin with sorrow and hatred of it and turning to God. Turning to God with humble love and obedience. Sometimes I have used the illustration of a U-turn along this line. Repentance is one big spiritual life U-turn. You were headed towards sin and you loved it. But when you heard the gospel and the Lord worked in your heart, you turned from that sin. You saw what it truly was. You hated it. You had grief about the fact that you willingly were going that way and you turn to God humbly. Who am I, O Lord? Just like the prodigal son here, who am I that you should save me? Lord, save me. So some explanation of this. Repentance involves a change of view. A change of feeling and a change of direction and purpose. It involves your mind it involves your heart. It involves the direction of your life. In other words, your entire being. A change of view and feeling and purpose. About what? About a change of view, feeling, and purpose about God. He's no longer this cosmic grandpa in the sky that I look to as kind of a vending machine. Now I see him as the holy, infinite God who's made, who made me who's righteous, who loves righteousness. And I'm going to answer to him. 
a change of view, feeling, and purpose about sin, what it really is. It's not a joke. It's not something we're going to look forward to doing in eternity in hell, playing cards with and partying with your buddies in hell. It is a change of view, feeling, and purpose, not only about God, not only about sin, but the sinner himself. He sees, I am that man. I am a rebel against God. I am guilty. Two passages you could write down here. We're going to look at a number together. But one you could write down right off is Acts chapter 26 and verse 20 to help us to see this idea of it. Acts 26, 20. Paul, describing his ministry uh, to Jews and Gentiles, he proclaimed that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So it's not just a head knowledge. It is a change of life. It is a U-turn. Doing works befitting repentance. First Thessalonians 1 and verse 9. A second passage. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul says of those former idolaters, he says, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. A complete change in outlook and devotion in direction of life. They no longer worshipped and lived for that, but they lived for the Lord. Looked for the Lord Jesus Christ. Another passage you could write down, Psalm 51.3, David's uh, psalm of confession and repentance. He recognized that who he sinned against was God. You and you only I have sinned against. A regret for sin, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. A genuine sorrow in the heart. Regret and grief for sin. And as we saw in Acts chapter 26, forsaking sin. Turning from it, doing works that are in line befitting repentance. I'd like us to think now about repentance in light of the gospel truths, number two, that we've looked at. This is why I spent the last six, seven, eight weeks walking through those. Because the only way you're rightly going to understand what repentance is and why it's necessary is in light of those gospel truths. We look first at God and man. I'm going to combine these here. The triune God, he is absolutely holy and absolutely righteous. So how does he feel about, yes, how does he feel about holiness? How does he feel about righteousness? Well, he tells us in Scripture, he loves righteousness. Loves it. How does God feel about sin? He hates it. Absolutely hates it. And this is necessary gospel truth. What about fallen man? He is offensive to God and an offender of God's law. Falls short of God's character. Breaks God's command. So what about man in light of who God is? Well, God loves holiness and righteousness and he hates sin. What's man? The sinful man. The exact opposite. He loves sin. Drinks it. Eats it. Lives it. Breathes it. 
and he hates holiness and righteousness because he will not willingly go that way. The gospel truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life, a holy life, a righteous life. He died as a sacrifice for sin. God was angry with sin. He is wrathful towards sin. And so Jesus died as a propitiation for sin. He took our place, took the place of receiving God's wrath, turned it, the wrath that we deserve towards himself. And then he rose in the same body, literally, uh, that he was buried in. So he provides everything that's needed for sinners to be saved from sin. The gospel message and regeneration number three. The gospel message demands, as we will see, demands repentance and faith to receive salvation. We're going to come, I'm going to repeat that word receive again, and it is an important one. The gospel demands repentance and faith to receive, not earn, salvation. Regeneration is God's giving immediately spiritual life to the spiritually dead. And when God does that, it causes them to see God for who he really is. Their eyes are open and they see God's holiness. It causes them to see themselves as God's enemies. As guilty. I am guilty. I have sinned against God. It helps them to see they can't save themselves. It sees that it causes them to see who Jesus is what he did, and that he is the only hope. And then they turn from their sin and they trust in Christ. And this is immediately, immediately. In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about when Jesus comes to the clouds and we will be caught up together to meet him. How long will that take? Do you remember from 1 Corinthians 15? In the what of an eye? All that's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. Just like that, when God causes a sinner to be born again, he's heard the gospel message, he repents and he believes. Rightly responding with repentance and faith, turning from sin and trusting in Christ to be saved. Number four, the Bible expects and demands repentance. Here I want us to look at several passages together. Let's look first, go with me to Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Here we see Jesus commanded repentance. And this is after he was raised from the dead. Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. His commission, as it were, uh, to the disciples in the church. Let's back up to verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus commanded repentance. Go to Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. So Luke John, in the book of Acts, 
Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Peter, preaching to Jews, his second sermon. He says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter preaching the gospel? Did he say repentance is optional? Did he say repentance comes after faith? No, they're both essential. Two sides sometimes some say out of the same coin, but they're both true and both necessary. Repent! What about the rest of the apostles? Go to chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, and verse 31. They're preaching the gospel. They're saying you need to repent. You need to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you crucified, you Jews, you need to repent and trust him. That did not set well with the Jewish authorities. So they brought him in. They beat them. They threw him in jail. They commanded him not to teach this anymore. And so they said in chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him has God exalted to his right hand to be a prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It said in verse 29, Peter and the other apostles. This was the unanimous message that all the apostles gave. Go to chapter 17 and verse 30. What about Paul? Because he wasn't one of those 12 there. As he describes himself in another letter, another letter, he is one, as it were, untimely born. But he did see the resurrected Christ, was called by Christ to preach the gospel, Jews and Gentiles, but was especially the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, the one through whom much church truth was given. And he says in Acts chapter 17 to unbelieving uh, intellectuals on the Mars Hill, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Verse 31. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the, the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Jesus, Peter, the rest of the 11 disciples and apostles. Paul. There's more. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and verse 1. Hebrews, chapter 6, and verse 1. Now, if you believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, then you can just kind of classify this as another example of Paul insisting on repentance. But we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It doesn't tell us. So we'll say the author of Hebrews. What does the author of Hebrews say about repentance? Hebrews 6 and verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Look at this. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and the faith toward God. How important is a foundation? Real important. If you don't have a good foundation, what's going to happen to your house? It's going to crumble. It's not going to stand. And what does the author of Hebrews say about repentance? It is an essential aspect of the foundation of Christianity. Essential repentance and faith. James. Let's go to James chapter 4. Just a few pages over. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. 
James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Now here, James doesn't use the word repent, but you're going to hear all the aspects of it right here. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. This is the, these are the characteristics of true repentance. What about in the future? Will things change then? Will there be a different uh, way to receive, as it were, salvation? A different way you should respond uh, to God's holiness? A different way sinners should respond to their sin? No, it will be the exact same. So let's jump forward. Sometime in the future, we don't know exactly when, when John wrote the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 16 Revelation chapter 16. Revelation tells us of Jesus' wrath that he will send on earth in a coming tribulation. A series, three series of, of judgments. Here in Revelation 16 is the final series. The worst is the absolute worst that will ever happen on earth. Look with me at verse 9. Uh, verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. What should they have done? They shouldn't have blasphemed God's name. They should have glorified it and repented of their sin. Drop down to verse 11. The fifth angel, I'll read verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl in the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Let's go back now to Luke chapter 15. The Bible expects and demands repentance. Kind of following on those future rebels that also characterize present rebels. Those who do not repent of sin. They do not repent of sin. What's their characteristic? They still love their sin. They still love it. They have no pang of guilt or grief about their sin. They don't see it as contrary to God. They don't see it as offensive to God. They don't think the consequences of sin are that serious. Doesn't bother them a bit. They keep going on in their sin. They don't think at all about the consequences. In fact, they make those consequences a joke. We're going to have fun in hell and party it up. They see God as a little concerned about sin, but not all that worked up about it because God is love. And how could God, a loving God, how could he punish sinners? They see Jesus for what he can do for them. And this is a grief 
because too many churches make this their message. Jesus can help you have a better life. He can put more money in your bank account. He can help your marriage. Does that square with what Jesus said? He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Yes, whoever believes in Christ is saved. And yes, you'll have peace in your heart. And yes, you'll have a peace that guards your understanding. No one can pluck you out of his hands and none can separate you from his love. But we still live in a sin-cursed world. We'll still suffer. And so as a believer, you remember, oh, love that will not what? Let me go. But the sinner who doesn't repent does not view Jesus this way. He looks at Jesus for, what can Jesus do for me? Oh, your Jesus expects me to turn from my sin? Your Jesus expects me to, to live a holy life? I don't want that Jesus. I want a Jesus of my own making. A Jesus that sounds good to me. This is 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, the tickling of the years. So number three. How then does God respond when a sinner repents? We read the context, what was going on in verses 1 and 2. Tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. They're turning from their sin and they're following Christ. What is that? What's that R word? It's repentance. And how did the Pharisees, the self-righteous scribes, respond? What is he doing? What is he thinking? Why is he associating with these people? Doesn't he understand where they came from? What they did? And so Jesus tells three parables. The one about the lost sheep. The one about the lost coin. That lost coin, we might want to just park there a quick second. I'd say, what's the big deal about a coin? I mean, what do we do with pennies? What do we do with that silver change? Well, it depends. Is it a quarter? Is it a dollar? Is it a 50 cent piece? A nickel? Eh, not that big a deal. This is a poor woman. She had no light in her home, no windows. How do we know? She had to light some, uh, light, light a candle to be able to see, to scour and look for that. These parables are showing how God responds to sinners to repent. What God thinks about sinners to repent. When each that was lost was found. The prodigal son, verses 11 to 24, we get some introductions. Verse 11, a certain man had two sons. Now, it might be better to title this parable a father and two sons. Because it's not just about the prodigal son, is it? A father and two sons. The younger son departs, verse 12. Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Well, you'd normally get your inheritance after the dad dies. The younger son wanted it now. And under Jewish law, the younger son would get about half of what the older son would get. So he got about a third of his dad's estate. And then he lived a life, verses 13 to 16, devoted to sin. Verse 13, after 
not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. So what he did with that inheritance is he, well, he converted it to cash to spend it. And then he blew it on sinful living, verse 14 and verse 30. When he had spent all, I'm sorry, verse 13, he gathered together, went to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And then verse 30, the older son says, this son of yours, and he is saying that with that kind of an attitude, this son of yours, he's devoured your livelihood with harlots. Blew it all in sinful living. And then as a result, when famine came, verse 14, he was at the mercy of the circumstances. He didn't invest that money. He didn't use it wisely. He blew it all. And as a result, he's in a bad place now. Verse 15, Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, sent him into the fields to feed swine. Stop a second. Let's do some historical hermeneutics interpretation of Scripture to understand the significance of this verse. Because you might just read it and kind of, you know, think not much think not think much of it. This young man was what culturally? A Jew. And where is he now? He's not in Israel. He went to a far country, didn't he? So he's not living with Jews. Who's he living with? A Gentile. And where's he working? For a pig farmer. You cannot get any lower in Jewish life right here. The lowest job possible as a Jew. And verse 16, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. He is just subsistence living. He's barely squeaking by and he's completely alone. Verses 17 to 21 tells of his repentance and his return. Look at verse 17. But. Reminds me Ephesians 2 where it says, but God. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he had a right view of himself and he had a right view of his father. How many of my father's hired hands have brought enough to spare and I perish with hunger? He has a change of attitude and direction. Verse 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You know what we have here in verses 17 and 19? We have a picture of regeneration and repentance and faith. He came to his senses. What happens when a sinner is born again? He comes to his Senses, he sees what's really going on, who he really is. He's blinded to it before. He was deceived before. Life isn't that bad. We're all kind of doing well. This man had a, a change of view, a change of feeling, and a change of purpose about God, sin, and himself as a sinner. The Father does not here represent God so much because what does he say in verse 18? I will arise and go to my Father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. That's another word for God and before you. He recognized the gravity of his sin. He has a godly 
confession. In verse 21, he said, the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He turned from sin with a sorrow for it. And he turned to God with humble love and obedience. The father's welcome, verses 22 to 24, he wouldn't even let the son, he wouldn't even let his son finish his speech. Remember, his son had the speech all planned out. Wouldn't even let him finish. This is my son. Let's get him the robe reserved for the most distinguished guest that would come. Let's put a ring on his finger showing he is my son. And what are we going to put on his feet? Sandals. And again, we might look at that and say, okay, he put shoes on his feet. The man was dirt poor. Slaves did not wear shoes or sandals. He is restoring. He is putting him in a position as his son. What a picture of God's salvation. Isn't this? What a picture of this welcome. But as I said, this isn't a parable just about the prodigal son. It's a parable of the father and his two sons because we also have quite a bit devoted uh, to the other son. Verses 25 to 32. But we're focusing especially on repentance, but let's consider this older son. He's angry. Verses 25 to 28. He is mad. He's so mad, he won't even go in to join in the party. He will not go out. To, he will not go in. And so, verse 28, he was angry, would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. And you can hear then the older son's arguments. When I read it, I emphasized it. I'll do it again so you can see his intent and remember the context of this parable. Verses 1 and 2. What was happening in verse 1? Sinners were leaving their sin and coming to Christ. What is that? It's repentance. And what did the Pharisees and the scribes, what was their attitude? Why are you doing this? Who are, what are you doing? Listen to the older brother here in verse 29. He answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. You never gave me a young goat. The difference between having a young goat for a dinner and the fatted calf is like, well, hot dogs and steak. That's the difference here. That I might make merry with my friends. Where is this older brother's focus and attention at? It's on himself. And where were the Sadducees and the scribes' attention on themselves and their self-righteousness? And you can hear the disdain of the older brother towards his dad in verse 30. As soon as this son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf. He is blaming God. He's blaming his dad with making a mistake. And what were the Pharisees doing in berating Jesus for receiving sinners? You are making a mistake. They are blaspheming God. We see the love of the father even towards his older son in verse 31. He said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. 
But as the focus of the parable is on how God responds to repentant sinners, it ends with that in verse 32. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. Your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. How far had the younger son gone from his father? How far? About as far as you could go into a distant country. How did the son view and act toward his sin and toward God? How did he view that? He saw sin, sin. Once he came to his senses, he humbled himself. He left it, turned, and went to his father. How did the father respond? Love and rejoicing and welcome. Here is a great truth. God welcomes every sinner who repents, no matter how deep in sin they may be. God welcomes every sinner who repents, no matter how deep in sin they may be. But who doesn't think that they need to repent? Those who consider themselves just and righteous. That's the first parable. The shepherd and the lost sheep. God rejoices when one truly repents. But those who need no repentance because they're so righteous, there's no rejoicing about that. God rejoices. Think of this, Christian. God is rejoicing in heaven. God is rejoicing in heaven at something that occurred in this limited, material, sinful world. He's rejoicing when sinners repent. Well, that begs a question. If he's rejoicing when sinners repent, what is God's feeling and attitude towards sinners who don't repent? Because remember, we're considering is, is repentance essential? It is. If God rejoices when sinners repent, what is God feel toward those who don't repent. Well, Psalm 58.3 tells us he is angry with the wicked every day. When they continue in their wicked, as it were, prodigal ways, loving their sin and rebelling against God. Is repentance necessary for salvation? Well, just as necessary as faith is. As I said earlier, repentance and faith are not needed works to earn salvation. Repentance and faith are not needed works to earn salvation. They are necessary responses to receive salvation. It is a response. It is a reaching out, a turning to. And it is depending on Jesus and what he has done. I'm going to teach about that, especially during the afternoon service, what we're relying on. When you think about your unsaved family members who don't really care about God, your unsaved neighbors, when you saw them out today, cutting their grass, getting ready for a day at the beach, go fishing, they look at you and they say, boy, that poor Christian, he has to go to church. Why are we here? Because we love our Lord. And we want to be with His people. This isn't a chore for us. We want to be here. 
what what do we need to do to get our unbelieving relatives and neighbors to have the same feeling and the same attitude? What good would it do to jazz up the service? Is that going to change your spiritual heart and mind? It's not. What do you need to do? There's good news. You give them the truth about God, about sin and sinners, that you can't save yourself. You tell them about Jesus Christ and you work through that truth. And you keep doing that and you pray, Lord, help them to believe and help them to repent. You can't change their mind. You can't get them to repent. You can't get them to believe and to rely on Christ. They must do that. God must open their heart. But He uses the giving of the gospel to do just that. Keep giving them the word. Keep living a godly life. Keep praying for their salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, in closing. Paul said to the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. What happens, Christian? What happens in heaven when a sinner repents? There's joy. I want you to think about this then. Our mission as Christians is a mission of joy. Think about that. When you think about being nervous about giving the gospel. Get the big picture. We are in a mission of joy that brings joy to the Lord. That makes Him glad and causes rejoicing among the angels of heaven. Let's pray. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I hope this helped and encouraged you. If you'd like to get in touch with us or learn more about our church, go to orwellbible.org. We pray that you will know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.